Well, today we are starting a brand new series as we will journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I just recently went to a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and the, the name of the conference was Together for the Gospel. That 12,000 pastors, it was sold out, came together around the cross, the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And during the conference, uh, we sang a number of hymns. And did you know they're writing new hymns today? Not just the old ones, they're writing new hymns. And so we were singing, 12,000 of us, about sin, about a cross, about a savior, about resurrection, the good news, the gospel. And as we were singing, on a couple of occasions, I had to stop because I was very moved. And on one occasion, I looked around, and, and uh, if I'm honest, there were tears in my eyes, and I saw this old guy singing with a ball cap on. How about you old, old people? Remove your ball cap when we're singing. But anyway, just kidding. This old guy was singing, and his hands were raised in the air, and I was like, I wonder what his story is, how Jesus changed his life. And then I saw another younger fellow, he had his hands raised, and same thing, I was, I wonder what his story is. And then there was this guy that had kind of long hair, he looked like Van Diesel, like just a big guy, and he had his hands raised. Same thing, I wonder how Jesus changed his life. On the flight to Louisville, I was sitting next to a fellow uh, and uh, found he was going to the conference too, just this young guy, and he was from Newfoundland, and his church and his mission, they were uh, planning churches in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so I got to hear a bit of his story. And one of the things I came away with from that conference was, man, Jesus is still at work today changing lives. And when I come to Woodside week after week after week, that's the case here. He's still changing lives. 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish rabbi turned follower of Jesus called Paul. And he brought the good news, the gospel, to Thessalonica, a town in, or city in Europe. And the people responded. Their lives were changed by the gospel. Their lives were changed by Jesus. And so he writes them a letter and he's talking to them about how Jesus had, had given them faith and love and hope. Faith, hope, and love. And so he writes this letter to them. And in this letter, he is going to emphasize hope. Today, as we go through this and we begin an eight-week series in this book, my prayer is that God, during this series, will fill you with hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not called to go through life hopeless. But that as you go through life, because your hope is in Jesus, you're taking your circumstances and you're constantly reframing them with Jesus in view, with heaven in view, with eternity in view. So may God fill you with hope in these next eight weeks. And as John Maxwell said, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. If there is hope in the future, there's power in the present. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at this church that was a model, and we too at Woodside want to be a model, and we're going to see how the gospel came to them and how Jesus changed them. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So Paul, along with Silas and Timothy who were with them, Paul writes this letter to the believers or followers of Jesus in a place called Thessalonica. And he immediately reminds them that they're in God's family. They're in the Father. They're in the Son. They're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Lord. He's going to use that word uh, a number of times in this letter. Lord meaning the sovereign one, the one who is the ruler, the one over all, Jesus of Nazareth, a real person, and Christ or Messiah, the one that was promised from the beginning. So he says, you're in that family, and then he begins with his typical greeting, grace and peace. Paul had received the grace of Jesus and the peace of Jesus, and he was wishing it upon these believers. So as we begin, let's, before we, as we start the series, let's look at the backstory to this church. And you'll find in your Bibles Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinth, all of these places where Paul wrote a letter to them, you can find how the gospel came to them in the book of Acts. And we're going to pick it up in just a moment in Acts chapter 17. Actually, let's read that and then I'll, I'll show the map. Acts chapter 17, here's the backstory of the church. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So it's the middle of the first century. If you look on this map, uh, this uh, map here shows Paul's second missionary journey, and about 50, 80, 50, he's in Thessalonica. He brings the good news about Jesus to Thessalonica. Now, if about a little less than 20 years earlier, Jesus had died uh, just outside Jerusalem on a cross, and days later, there were people saying that they saw Jesus alive. He was the Messiah. He was God in the flesh. He'd come. And uh, Paul, he was formerly known as Saul, was a Jewish rabbi. And he was hostile to all things Jesus. God could not become a man. God could not die on a cross. God could not be raised again because he can't die. Jesus was a false Messiah. So he was trying to stamp out this movement that was moving from Jerusalem further up. And on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, we read how he saw the risen Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. Years later, he and Barnabas from this church in Antioch, in Acts 13, set out on their first missionary journey, and they traveled to this area, which is Turkey today, and they shared the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and people get saved, and they follow Jesus there. Years later, he starts from Jerusalem, and he begins his second missionary journey, and he goes through this area of Turkey that he was uh, in earlier, but then he goes to the western part of what we know now as Turkey, to Troas. And at Troas, he's trying to go this way or that way with the gospel, and he, he's, just, he's meeting resistance. And he gets this vision. Anybody up at 3 a.m. in the morning quite often? I'm guessing it was like 3 in the morning. 
he gets this dream or this vision of a man in Macedonia coming, come, saying to him, come and help us here. So Macedonia is up here in Europe. That's uh, the area where Alexander the Great was from. So Paul decides to go to Europe, and he goes there and takes the gospel to this place called Philippi and, and uh, was thrown in prison with Silas, Acts chapter 16. There was resistance to the gospel. And why is that? For three years, there was the religious leaders who dogged Jesus. He was a false messiah, they claimed. And throughout the Roman Empire, in this day in the first century, all this area here around the Mediterranean, uh, people in the, in the Greco-Roman world worshipped Roman gods, Greek gods, Egyptian gods. They had temples to these gods. The gods were capricious. They, you just appeased the gods so they wouldn't strike you down and kill you. And so, but in the midst of all of those temples, there were Jews who worshipped in a synagogue. And the Jews who worshipped in the synagogue, like Paul was earlier, they were not followers of Jesus. They wanted the Jesus movement to end. So in Philippi, you've got some religious people there, um, Jews, who want uh, Paul uh, stopped. So he and Silas are thrown into prison. From there, they, they get out of prison, and they make their way to Thessalonica. And at Thessalonica, we, as we read in Acts chapter 17, Paul, as was custom, would go to one of these synagogues. So he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he went back to the Old Testament. He said, you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know David? You know Moses? They were all pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus. Jesus is the one I'm proclaiming. He is that promised one. And it says he explained and proved that the Messiah had to die and be raised to life again. So he was saying, you know the one we've been waiting for? It really is Jesus. I saw him. And some of the people were there were persuaded and became followers of Jesus. They believed. But others were hostile. And so they, they want to get Paul. And in the uh, middle of the night, Paul, his life is in danger. Paul and Silas escape. And um, for three weeks, almost a month, three Sabbaths, he was there uh, sharing with the, the followers of Jesus, these people who heard the gospel and responded, the good news about Jesus. But then in the middle of the night, he has to leave without saying goodbye. He goes there from there to Berea. They studied the scriptures in Berea and to the synagogue there. And he's teaching there. And the, some of the, the, uh, those opposed to Paul in Thessalonica, here he's there. And so they come to Berea to arrest him. From Berea, Paul goes down to Athens, then eventually over to Corinth and spends a year and a half at Corinth and eventually makes his way back to Judea. But in Corinth here, he writes a letter to the believers in Thessalonica. It's about a year has passed, and he had sent Timothy, who had joined Paul and Silas, he had sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica to hear how they were doing. Paul was longing to see the Thessalonians. How are they doing? So Timothy makes the 300-mile journey, trek up, because they don't have email or text in those days. Paul doesn't know how they're doing. Timothy comes back and says, they're not only surviving, they are thriving. And so while he's here in Corinth, Paul is going to write this letter to the Thessalonians. So verse 2 we read, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We haven't forgotten you. I know it's been about a year. I know we had to leave in the middle of the night and we didn't get to say goodbye, but you matter to us. We just, when we, Timothy just gave me the report, and when we were with you, 
God was at work. Jesus was changing your life. Just thank you, thank you, Lord. Then verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When you get the good news about Jesus, the gospel, when you get it, it changes you. And here's what happens. If you really get the gospel, you're going to find Jesus filling you with faith, filling you with love, and filling you with hope. In your relationship with Jesus each day, you're trying to take time to be with him, to talk to him throughout the day. So notice first, their faith had caused or produced works. This has in mind what James says, faith without works is dead. Faith saves us, but real faith is evidenced by works. So after these people had heard the good news about Jesus and responded, God started to work in their lives, and there were works. Some of the works, we know some of the works, right? You stop lying, or you start, stop criticizing people, you stop profan- sharing, swearing and profanity, you stop being stingy, you stop being selfish, you stop being mean, you start being kind, you start being patient, you start to be generous with your money, with God's work and with, with causes. So they were being changed. Notice there, secondly, that their love was prompting labor. And the word labor is a stronger word than work. It has the idea of strenuous work, perspiring work, if you will, work that takes it out of you. That when you understand the love of Jesus for you, that you want to love Jesus back by loving other people. So you go to work. And sometimes it takes it out of you. How many of you have served in the nursery and, and, and you're just like, man, it took, me, it took, took it out of me today. Those kids, I just took it out of me. Sunday school class. Some of the kids, lots of energy, took it out of me today. With the youth on a Thursday night or Friday night, oh my goodness, I'm exhausted. Life group, you're in a life group and you're a leader, takes it out of you. Making a meal for someone, takes it out of you. When Jesus is working in your life, you find yourself doing things that take it out of you because it's prompted by your love for him. And then notice your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance, you keep going on because hope is inspiring you. It's like not just a marathon, but an ultra marathon. You just keep on going. Please understand this. If you're investigating the Christian faith, if you come to Jesus, it's the best thing you could ever do with your life. He is life. But when you come to Jesus, there's no guarantee that you're not going to have trials and heartache. In fact, sometimes it comes because you're a Christian. You, as a follower of Jesus, if you haven't experienced deep disappointment, you probably will before you die sometime. Disappointment in a relationship. Disappointment with your job. Disappointment with a dream. Disappointment with your health. But when you get the gospel in Jesus, you don't pack up your your tent and go home and this didn't work for me. I'm not singing to Jesus anymore, talking to Jesus. No, when you understand your hope, you keep going. And the hope, what is biblical hope? It's a confident expectation of a wonderful future. The biblical hope that we have 
We're looking forward in the future, but that hope is anchored to a past event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he was raised from the dead. He's alive. And it's anchored to the past, but it impacts you in the present. So you're like, here's my circumstances. They're maybe not great, but I've got Jesus and eternity in view, and I'm going to keep on going. Notice their faith, their hope, and their love was in the Lord Jesus Christ, in a person. Jesus is my hope. Now notice there, too, the order. This triad of virtues or characteristics of a follower of Jesus usually is faith, hope, and love, right? The church at Corinth struggling uh, with one another, disunity. Hey, uh, faith, hope, and love, and the emphasis is on love. Love remains. It's the greatest one. But here, he puts hope at the end because these believers need to be reminded of their future with Jesus. Five times, actually, if you, I'd encourage you this week to, to read through in one sitting, take 20 minutes and read through uh, 1 Thessalonians, and you'll find in each chapter, there's a block where Paul's talking, and then he connects it to Christ's return. Chapter 2, a block of teaching, how to live, connects it to Christ's return. Chapter 3, 4, and 5, here's how we live, but we're living in light of Jesus. If there's hope in the future... There is power in the present. Paul goes on to say, Jesus has worked in your life. He's filled you with faith and love and hope, and it's working. And then he reminisces and goes back to how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, first came to them. You heard it, and you received it. You lived it out, and then you're sharing it. You're proclaiming it. So verse 4. For we, they received the good news of Jesus. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Yes, you chose Jesus, but I want to remind you there's a bigger story going on. God loves you, and he chose you. We choose God, God chooses us. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, his death and resurrection, we shared that news with you. We saw him... People saw him on the cross, and then they saw him alive. We shared that, the words with you, but notice this. But also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. When the good news of Jesus came to you, you not only just heard it, but God was at work through his Holy Spirit, convicting you of your sin. Jesus died on the cross for me. And then convicting you or assuring you that your sins are forgiven, and you're going to be with him forever and ever. That's why we continue to pray for people that don't yet know Jesus, that haven't put their faith in Jesus. I want to ask you, do you have a prayer list? Maybe it's in your phone, maybe it's in your head, but you regularly pray for people, a family member, someone at work. How many of you, someone you've been praying for over 25 years, just heard the story of a, of a girl who was praying for her mom, and her mom came to faith after 20 years of praying. And this girl was in tears because she said, after year five, I was ready to give up. We pray for people because we can share the words of Jesus, but the Spirit has to work and say, this is true. This is what life is all about. So they received the gospel, and then they lived it out. Verse 5, you know how we lived among you for your sake, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message, the gospel, in the midst of severe suffering. We're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. They suffered greatly. 
in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul, Silas, and the team come to Thessalonica, share the good news about Jesus, but they're also living it out. You know how we lived it out among you. We weren't greedy. We weren't selfish. We didn't have false motives. Paul's going to later share. We lived it out. But then you started to imitate us how to follow Jesus, and now you're a model to followers of Jesus everywhere. You received the gospel, you lived it out, and now you're proclaiming it. Verse 8. The Lord's message, or the gospel, rang out from you. And the rang out, that verb, has the idea it echoed, it reverberated from you. That, that, that Jesus came and did something in your life, and it's echoing. Can I talk to all the grandparents here? Is, are you reverberating Jesus to your grandkids? You're about Jesus? If you haven't been, Start today. Oh, God, I'm praying for my grandkids or my great-grandkids that they'll know Jesus and the good news about Jesus. I want my faith to reverberate to them, to echo to them. The Lord's message, it just rang out from the church at Thessalonica, but not only in the province of Macedonia and Achaia, which is just a bit further north, another province. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Paul's like, when we travel around and we're going to tell them about the Thessalonians and what they did, what God did there, they already know. Your faith is already known. And the gospel is just reverberating from you. Friends, can I say uh, Woodside? The gospel is echoing from Woodside through our words, but through our life. And in the days ahead, we want even a stronger volume because we are proclaiming news from another network, right? We turn on a network. Here's the spin on everything. We're from a huge network, God's network. God's kingdom, and we're announcing the best news of all, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If you're new to Woodside, uh, Woodside is about 47 years old. Um, this October will be 47 years, and from day one, when the, the first followers of Jesus met at an old school, uh, old Riverside School, from day one, the church was about the gospel. We're going to lift up Jesus week after week, and for 47 years, that's been happening and it's interesting, some of those young kids that were there 47 years ago, they received the gospel, they saw others live it out, and now they're living it out, and now they're proclaiming it. And that's what we want in the future. With all the kids right now down in Sunday school, kids in the nursery, that they'll hear the gospel, they'll see people living it out, and then they'll be proclaiming it as well. And what is really wonderful too, is we here at Woodside were able to plant a church, Citizens Church. And from day one, that church, their meeting right now, has been about the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. If you're new, we're not about proclaiming the prosperity gospel, right? If, you know with money, the way you handle money, if you do it God's way, that's a good thing. There's principles there. But we're not about proclaiming money or health. We look at God's word, it's a good thing, it helps us with our health, but that's not what we're about. Those things are too small. And we're not about the social gospel. 
we as followers of Jesus need to be advocates for things and for the marginalized and for people and to care and refugees and helping people. But we're about the gospel. Out of the gospel then comes money, how we handle money, how we look after ourselves with our health, what causes we become a part of. So we are about the gospel. That's what continues to ring out from Woodside. And then Paul then shares how the faith of these Thessalonians had become known. Verse 9. They tell, so as we're talking to people, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You were following the world. You were following the idols of the world. You were following your own pursuits. You didn't have God in mind. And you turned to God from idols. And you began to serve, to live for the living and true God. Those idols that were a part of your lives before, they're false. They're dead. They're small. You're serving the living and true God. It's called repentance, where you're going this way, you're in control of your life, and then you're like 180. Jesus, you're in control. I'm turning to you. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about two kinds of idols. And so we still have idols today. He talks about surface idols, so that would be like social media, uh, our smartphone. Uh, Can we get the idols there on the next screen? There we go. Social media, uh, smartphone, family, sports. There's a, a number of idols that you could put under there. And that's what you see on the surface level. But then he talks about root idols. If you go deeper, and he categorizes three types of root idols. First, fame and approval. Second, power and control. Third, comfort and security. These are the deeper desires of our heart. This is what my life is about. When you go deep enough, my life is about my comfort and security, or my life is about fame and approval, or my life is about power and control. You may not say that, but at the root, that's what it's about. And Paul says, you were about those idols and you turned. Do you understand, do we understand that we were made by God and for God? That an idol is anything that takes his place. It can be a good thing that becomes a God thing. It can be a thing that our affections, our apex of our affections are for that thing. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to continue to battle these idols. As, as God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols before me. Your family is not to be before me. Sports is not to be before me. All of these things because I made you for myself. And when we follow idols, we're not worshiping the God. When you get the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it eclipses anything that the world has to offer. Young, young people, and um, many of our young people are away to uh, young adult retreat this weekend, but for those that are still young or you think you're young, as you look ahead, you can follow what the world says will bring you satisfaction and meaning. Money, sex, career, entertainment, the list, lots of idols. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making machines, right? There's always something right now. Smartphone, that can be idol. 20 years from now, it'll be something else, right? Something that takes the place of God. 
G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Today, so many idols out there that we can worship. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, you used to worship those idols, but you turned. Jesus got a hold of you. You turned to the living and true God. You're serving him. Verse 9, they tell you, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. You turn to God. Now notice this, to wait for his son from heaven. Paul is saying to you and to me, the one who died on the cross and rescued us from God's judgment, his wrath, the one we're serving and living for in the present is coming again from heaven and we're waiting, not with a passive, oh, could be this week, with a daily frame of like Jesus could come anytime. And so I'm living with that. I'm waiting for him. I'm looking forward each day as I go through life. Three tenses of salvation we find there. There's a past tense. I was saved. I turned from idols to God from idols. I am being saved. I'm serving the living and true God, present tense. And I will be saved. I'm waiting for Jesus to return. Notice here in chapter 1, Paul said, God's at work in your life. The gospel came to you, and then he, all, he connects it to the return of Jesus. Church of Thessalonica was filled with faith and hope and love. Woodside, as we journey forward, may we be filled with faith, hope, and love. And if you are here today, God wants to fill you with his hope, his second coming, that you learn to reframe everything with that view. At Woodside, we are proclaiming Jesus, who is the hope of the world. We have a hope in Jesus that no virus can kill. No virus can kill it. Not even a sin virus, death virus. He conquered the grave. He's alive. He's coming again from heaven one day. And we're waiting for him. We're waiting for the soon returning, returning conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. We're waiting for the one who is our strength, who is our comfort, who is our healer, who is our sustainer, who is our firm foundation, who is our life, who is our resurrection, who is our light, who is our hope. That's the one we're waiting for. Would you please stand? In just a moment before we take communion together, we're gonna to sing a, a song called His Mercy is More, a reminder that in our relationship with Jesus, even though we're not perfect, he's not leaving us, he loves us. And so we're gonna sing that, but before we do, I'm gonna invite you to take a moment and respond to God. And I wanna ask you, if, if you'd like to bow your heads, but I'm gonna ask you, are you feeling hopeless? Are you looking at circumstances, the present, and you feel hopeless? Today, would you by faith bring Jesus into your picture? Jesus, I've got you in view. And then secondly, if you're here and you've never turned to the true and living God from idols, you've never said yes to Jesus, if you're honest in your story, are you missing something? What you're missing is Jesus. Or if you're here today and you're carrying guilt, Jesus doesn't want you to carry that. 
The answer is Jesus. Come and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And if you're here today and you're full of fear, Jesus is the answer. He's our hope.